Hello, friends. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Improv and Magic with me, your friend LD. I'm so happy that you're here with me once again, and I'm even more happy about my guest today. This is someone who is widely regarded as one of the best improv teachers today in America. If you perform or study improv, you've definitely heard of this person. It's the one and only Joe Bill. He is one of the founding members of Annoyance Theater in Chicago. He was the director of corporate training at I.O. and a teacher and guest artist in residence at Second City. Joe performs and teaches all over the world and has been an inspiration to improv actors for so many years. He's also one half of the show Bass Prov, an improv show with two guys fishing, which he performs with Mark Sutton. I was so incredibly happy and honored to talk with Joe. You'll hear him share about his time at Second City. You'll hear him talk about the first time he met Del Close. You're going to love that story. And so much more. This man never ceases to amaze me. And I know you'll be amazed as well. Let's do this. Here's my guest, Joe Bill. I am very happy to say right now that I'm joined by this wonderful, wonderful human being, Joe Bill. How you doing, Joe? LD, my man, what's happening? So good to see you. It's a, It's been a while since you and I have seen each other, yeah. hasn't it? I think it's been since uh, last year in Tampa, maybe, at Countdown. Was that the last time? I think that was the last time, yeah. Yeah, so almost coming up on a year, and I'll see you there again uh, next month. Yes, yes, we will see each other there again. Yep. And uh, you just came back from uh, from a tour of Europe. Yep, was over there for uh, seven, eight weeks, something like that. And um, I just got back. What what day is it today? <laughs> is it Thursday? It, last I checked, it was Thursday. Yeah, so I got back on Saturday, and I think I just I'm just about through the reverse jet lag, and um, yeah, I've been doing uh, you know just like the the big it's like going through jet lag, and then it's like oh, it's the beginning of the month. I got to pay some bills. I got to do like all the admin <laughs> stuff. There's a big stack of mail that was waiting for me. So, um, yeah, yeah. I've been just, you know, churning through a lot of stuff and, um, still kind of processing and taking, taking in, you know, all the fun times that, uh, that Europe was. So, yeah. Do you ever get used to all the jet lag because you're traveling constantly? Is it something that you ever get used to or, does it still kind of wear you down a bit? No, I mean, it's, I just, uh, you know, I think I'm just used to it. I think I plan for it better. Uh, now that I'm older, when I was younger, I had one plan and that doesn't work anymore. So the one, the original plan when I would fly over to Europe would be get there. You're usually arriving between seven and 10 in the morning. And then you stay up as long as you can until you feel like you're going to die, which is usually sometime between three and four in the afternoon. And then when that, when you just feel like you can't take it anymore and you're going to die, then you have your first drink and then your body goes, Oh, Oh, we're drinking. 
okay. <laughs> and then I could usually ride that till somewhere between 10 and midnight and then just big crash. And then I would sleep, you know, 12 hours till the next day. And then that would take me uh, into the point where for the next two days, sometimes in the afternoon, I would get the yawns and I would just do like a cappuccino around three and push through. And then usually by day four, I'm okay. Now, um, since I'm older, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, I work up to it a little bit more. I go to bed a little earlier the week leading up. I get up earlier the week leading up. And this last time I, um, yeah, this last time was crazy because I usually do my staging through one city, uh, and Paris It's usually Paris or Amsterdam, but I, so I went through Paris this last time. So I flew into Charles de Gaulle and then I transferred and I jumped another plane down to Rome. So it was the first time I kind of had to do a, a two, a two plane hop. And then, um, yeah, then took my cabin, cabin to Rome. And, uh, I think I got there in the afternoon, just in time to check into my Airbnb that took a big old nap and drank plenty of water. So, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, so that was okay. And I was still tired for a couple of days, but it's, um, you know, it's just something you deal with. And, um, and actually right before I talk to you, I'm, I'm going back to France in August because there's a festival in Lyon. And, um, so I just finished booking my, my flights for that. I'll be over for like another three weeks and I'm not sure what the second half of that is, that's going to do, but I arrive on a Saturday and then I start teaching on a Sunday morning. So that will be interesting <laughs> to say the least, Yeah, <laughs> but at least you have your system in place. So that's good. I got my system in place until, uh, until another system pops up, but yeah, I think, <laughs> I think I know how I'm, I'm a. I'm going to approach this one and I'm almost tempted. I mean, I've been getting up early again. I've been waking up like about four or five and then going back to sleep. But I've been out of bed between eight and nine every day so far. And I'm kind of thinking of keeping that up uh, until I have to go back. But I don't know. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. (laughs) All right. Are you typically a morning person? No. (laughs) I mean, I'm a morning. I'm not a bright, sunny, shiny person in the morning, but like I'm, I'm fairly mellow, quiet. I like music and coffee or maybe, um, maybe a podcast or something. So I'm not a bear in the morning. I just like quiet and peace in the morning. I hear you. Um, but I tend to be a night owl. I think it's, I think it's because I was born at two 30 in the morning. That's what were you really I was born at two 30 AM. My father said, uh, my father used to say that I've always been on Hawaii time. well where where were you born let's go ahead and get into it now where were you born i was born in indianapolis indiana in uh 1962 so i'm 61 years of age chronologically 61 and i think i lived about 90 years of experience and yeah cool and what was growing up for you like oh i suppose it was you know, on the one hand, it was fairly normal. I'm the oldest of five, like Catholic middle class, uh, you know, dad, German, Irish, New Yorker, mom, French, Irish, 
Indiana, you know, kind of from a family that was like half hillbillies that made good and half hillbillies that didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I'm the oldest of five. And I think, um, you know, I was, I was always kind of the, the entertainer, the comedian, but I also had a sense that, uh, not continuously, but I, I, I often had the sense like I was born into the wrong family and, you know, they didn't really know what to do with me. Um, (laughs) my mom was a little bit of a frustrated actress and, you know, was not allowed to pursue her dreams. Uh, so she kind of backed me and was, you know, they were supportive, but moderately so. And by the time I arrived in Chicago and started doing stuff at annoyance and doing stand up, I was full of a lot of, um, you know, like, I don't know if it's like anger, frustration, bitterness, just like stuff. Like I was really, I was ready to get the hell out of, out of Dodge. And, uh, I think I knew a lot more about what I wasn't and what I didn't want to be than what I, who I was and what I, you know, who I did want to be. So, you know, I think I'm fairly typical in the comedy realm of, you know, raised Catholic reject Catholicism, uh, and all its scars. And, um, yeah, uh, played sports, did music, uh, fairly, fairly unremarkable. I mean, yeah, it's Indiana. What do you, what are you going to do? Play basketball, <laughs> right. sing songs, eat corn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've often heard that people who grew up in big families and are one of five, six or seven kids often feel that need to stand out. And so they try to entertain the family and be the funny one at times. Would you say that that's what you went through when you were growing up? You know, it's weird. I I told you before we started that uh, I'm concurrently, I'm both writing a book and um, working on a one man show. And, um, and I I don't know if, if you had known that uh, last, I guess, I guess it was last, uh, at the throwdown festivals when I found out I had cancer. So I had like cancer and went through chemo, uh, ended last year into the beginning of this year. And so all of this, you know, examination of my life sort of came out. So I was not the entertainer just to entertain. I think it was, um, you know, I was really, I think I was the most artistic kid in the family and everybody else was very sports driven and non-artistic. And I was lucky enough to have just like a little bit of talent. And so I, I learned quickly that I could keep my father's anger or disappointment at bay by being sort of entertaining. Um, (laughs) But I mean, at a very, very early age, I just thought I didn't know what, there was something not right about the whole Catholic way of doing things. And I mean, my father played football for Notre Dame and my mother went to St. Mary's and they were as Catholic as Catholic can be. Mm-hmm. So part of it was I learned not to be too sassy or too challenging about what I thought was ridiculous. And so I became, you know, I developed this sort of alter personality um, as I discovered like, you know, quote unquote, my people in high school that, um, it just, it kind of came natural to me. And, uh, as oldest children go oldest, you know, they say 
the majority of oldest kids are really concerned about pleasing their parents and achieving and, you know, living up to the expectations your parents have. But there's a cut of us, and I'm part of this, where it's like, I'm out. This program does not work for me. I can't wait to get the fuck out of the house. I can't wait to, you know, to get out. And I remember I was in fifth or sixth grade when I learned the word hypocrite and the idea of hypocrisy. And I cried because I thought they were keeping this word from me because it would expose their secret that they were like, mm. I, I had a little bit of a conspiratorial mind, like this whole Catholic thing is some weird cult. And, you know, this isn't normal. Um, and while I enjoyed, you know, I, I enjoyed team sports and the lessons that taught me, um, especially basketball. Um, but I think, I was not cut out to be one of those please your parents by excelling in all sports kids. And so as it became more apparent that I was artistic, um, I think I started to see that as my, you know, quote unquote escape from prison. So, I mean, my childhood wasn't awful, but I, I just wasn't satisfied with it. You know, I love my family. I loved my parents they are both past now, but like, there's just a lot of things I didn't like. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I don't, I feel like that was a little rambly, but. Uh... No, no, I enjoy the rambles, oh. believe me. <laughs> ramble on. <laughs> yeah, ramble on, man. Was there anything in particular that drew you to being more artistic? Was it all about that escapism that you needed? Um, I think, well, okay, here comes a, like, Frank uh, a Frank true story from my childhood that I think was like seminal. I will also write about this in the book. And I've told this story when I was five, uh, like kindergarten, my mom had a nervous breakdown in front of me. And so that manifested in on the one hand, she would like swing into this crazy manic laughter. And she was like, you know, talking and you know, almost like a speaking in tongues kind of weird thing and cackle men. And then it would like flip and turn and she would segue into this horrific sobbing. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I just remember it as like the first, what I came to learn is like my first sense of dissociating from the moment. So I wasn't really in the moment. I kind of went outside my body and I looked just objectively in a very stoic way at these, it was like, this binary option that was presented to me where the sobbing and moaning and that those awful sounds were definitely the least desirable. And so what I remember is me, if she started going that way, trying to make faces and do voices and get her back to the laughing part. And that is permanently etched in my brain. And I think I've just come to, ascribe that as the beginning of my being an entertainer. Um, mm -hmm. And really that's like the, I think that's the biggest piece of truth for me, which is um, like, I think life can be really terrible, but it doesn't mean you can't laugh at it or through it or have a good time. So, you know, that that's what I would call like the moment where everything started. Mm. That's really interesting. Mm. And, and I'm sorry you had to, you had to go through that, but I think, you know, through all stuff like this, it's one of those things where it happens to us, but then we see where we are now. It's definitely part of our, our growth. Yeah. I think there's, 
I mean, during the pandemic too, just listening to so many podcasts and different people in comedy, actors, improvisers, telling their childhood stories. I mean, there's so many of us who, for one reason or another, started acting, started comedy, started improvising before we even knew what that was just as a coping mechanism. And so for some people, it's like, you know, you know, nothing to see here. Our family's normal. (laughs) Everything's happy. Or for some people, it's, you know, uh, even people from, you know, quote unquote, perfect families or boring families. Like my family's so boring. Nothing's remarkable. Uh, I'm going to act out because, hey, we're more fun than just, you know, these boring suburban people. Um, (laughs) And I think there's I think there's just something in some of our brains that we're born with that offers to us the possibility of humor as a coping mechanism for all the crazy stuff that our brain discovers as we're growing and um, trying to process this crazy thing we call life. So uh, yeah, that's interesting to me. I, I think a lot of, I think I wonder like what percentage of us are just predisposed to this. And then some of us just sort of manifest the journey through all the, uh, you know, through a series of discoveries in life. Yeah. I think it's interesting how those of us that are in comedy see the comedy as our own therapy first. And later on we discover, Oh wait, it's something that I can actually do for a living. It's an interesting uh, revelation that a lot of us tend to have. Yeah. I mean, I never really looked at it as therapy until I got out of college and I was, I I arrived in Chicago. I started doing standup And I realized that I had this bug up my ass about the Catholic upbringing and, um, and that I was fucked up about some stuff and I have had anxiety about stuff. And I, again, I was, I think I was aware that I knew a lot more about what I didn't want to be, but I just had no sense of self or who I was. And so I, I knew I had to process the Catholic shit that I just had laughed my way through and so this idea of therapy came to me when I thought, well, I can either pay a therapist to listen to this or I can turn this into a stand-up act and get paid to tell it. <laughs> and, you know, that's what I did. Um, by the time I, I did stand-up from like, I guess it was 85 to 93. And by in my last three years of stand-up, I probably had uh, – hour and a half hour and 45 minutes. It was just all rooted in Catholic stuff that I could cycle through. Um, but yeah, and I think improvisation, I didn't really, I associated, um, up as, as therapy, but not improvisation. I just knew it was preferable for me to create with other people more, uh, it was more enjoyable than just me going out there by myself. And also like in my last couple of years of doing stand up was like in a way, the worst time of my life where I was like very self-destructive. Um, you know, the more I harmed myself, the more I was awful to myself. Um, the more I, I mean, like my marriage fell apart, everything. I was just on the freaking skids. I was just out of freaking control. And the more I was out of freaking control and I would get on stage and kill, the more it just kind of fed itself. And so luckily Mm -hmm. I worked with a couple of comics who were 
you know, were in the programs and stuff, and I would drive them to AA meetings uh, on the weekend sometimes. And I knew there was a lot of alcoholics and like um, extreme personalities in my family. And so the end of my stand-up career was kind of recognizing, oh, I've also got this thing. I've got this um, lack of impulse control thing in terms of speak, you know, spouting my words uh, that also went with a like live fast, die pretty type of mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it was, yeah. So it was as I was ending stand-up, I realized, well, it's been a good run, but I think, the original idea, like you need to go see a therapist. That's when that kicked in. And so, right. Luckily I did that. And, uh, yeah, kind of never looked back at stand up. Um, and luckily I think I realized it wasn't worth the price of self-destruction to, you know, get laughs in front of, you know, a bunch of people who just wanted to laugh at an idiot. So (laughs) (laughs) did you always imagine that it was, going to be just stand up for you or were you open to the possibility of doing other creative outlets? You know, I moved to Chicago in 85 and by 88, the, those of us from our college improv group that would be the Indiana university clump of people associated with starting the annoyance had also moved up. So I was doing annoyance stuff and stand up stuff concurrently for five or six years through the end of the eighties into the early nineties. And so I was lucky enough to have that contrast of experience with me where I didn't know, I didn't know if stand up would be everything, but because I couldn't, I saw value in each world. I think that also began sort of a narrowing of my focus down to like, I just need to, be in the moment and see what seems to be serving me right now. And then increasingly at the end, the, the great thing about the annoyance, a, one of the great things about annoyance was there's a lot of people there, you know, some people referred to us as the Island of misfit toys. And so there was a lot of us there that had gone through, you know, abuse and addictions and, you know, all kinds of life shit. And, part of the annoyance game was we, everybody would give each other shit about whatever their sensitive points were, but then we would, you know, also turn all that stuff into musicals or plays and stuff. And I, I think it became, I think it became inadvertently therapeutic to realize that, oh, there's other people who had been through shit that was maybe worse than me or, you know, parallel to me, not that it's a contest, but it's just like, oh, we're all kind of fucked up. So let's do these shows. And, um, you know, if the, if the media wants to call us, you know, the shocking cutting edge new theater, like, I don't think we saw ourselves like that. I think we were just processing our shit, you know, in musical form and, you know, having a sense of community, having a sense of family, where all of us were from our own dysfunctional families, but yet that we had chosen each other to be in this one space and had achieved some type of artistic success. It was the beginning of, you know, really understanding who I was and turning that corner out of not knowing who I was or not knowing what I wanted into some type of sense of, yeah, there's something here that I want 
that involves being part of an ensemble. And then, um, you know, that took me, that took me through the nineties, you know, till, uh, the big theater, the, the first big theater annoyance closed. And, um, you know, by that time I had probably been through three therapists maybe, and was the therapy piece was in full bloom, but I knew, I knew that, you know, improv couldn't be, you know, that therapy is therapy. And though improv or stand up or whatever could be therapeutic, I knew that there was shit I had to dig deep into my brain and, you know, spirit to, to unearth that is, you know, frankly, I mean, it's taken me 30 years to get through some of it. So, but you know, no regrets. It's uh, at least there's material in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really interesting how so many times I've seen, you know, different classes and different ensembles and rarely do I see anybody in the improv rule in the improv world that has all their shit together. Yeah. You know, but I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying because yeah, in a way we do get kind of looked at as the land of misfit toys because a lot of us are coming in with our shit Mm -hmm. and then we find this place where we don't have to mask it. We can just go ahead and embrace it and be willing to show people this is who I am. And rather than hide this from you, I'm going to share this with you, which I find really, really lovely all the time. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, you know, when we say our shit to be specific, you know, we become improvisers or comedians or actors in response to a set of circumstances that we've grown up in. And so now when you remove those circumstances and what you have is a group of people standing in an improv room of some kind who have all had some type of similar journey through circumstances, and now you're making up reality with each other. I mean, especially like scenes. Well, and I mean, and, and improv games too, you know, it's just improv games are set they're set pieces of circumstances with rules that you have to maneuver your way through and you play by the rules and you break the rules. And, you know, the, you know, the idea is you get a laugh because that's what you promise people who walk through your door, (laughs) Um, you know, and then some of the more scenic improvisation that I do again, you're, you're dealing with a set of circumstances that might be, uh, fewer in number than if you're doing like an improv show just made of games or short form, but we're still inventing or discovering circumstances together that we get to navigate together with humor, with intellect, with cleverness, with um, savvy. And in a way, in terms of brain function, we trained ourselves to do that we trained our brains to deal with circumstances through our childhood. Um, and now we've just removed the, the outside forces or the lack of acceptance or the being teased or the whatever we've removed all of that. And now we have a brain that has neural pathways that are developed that says, give me circumstances. I will deal with circumstances. Please, please give me (laughs) circumstances. So, I mean, that's how, that's how I look at it. Not to nerd out too much, but again, this will all be in my book, which hopefully will be done by the end of this year. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you discover improv? I was in uh, high school and I had a teacher named Dolly Davis. 
Her name was Dolly Davis, and she talked like this. <laughs> and she like smoked one twenty cigarettes, and she. This would. Uh, I took my first. I did my first improv games, or you know, uh, was first exposed to improvisation in the fall of '77. So. 46 years ago now coming up <laughs> and um and in that day we would um she would have us improvise one minute mimes so we had to like tell a story in a minute which was really great and then we would do like poetry games um you know short for me short formish type stuff but at the end of the day what it opened my eyes to was, oh, I don't have to memorize lines. And that, <laughs> um, it was about the same time in high school, I had learned a couple years earlier that I'm like air quotes, a slow reader, because I didn't know, uh, my brain has to be able to hear the words that my eyes are seeing in order for me to comprehend it. Otherwise I see words and they remind me of a better idea that I have in my head. And then I go off to never, never land while my eyes continue to scan the words in a book. <laughs> I can be three pages later and I'm like, what the fuck have I just read? I've, I've just, you know, been in a world of my own creation. So, yeah, I mean, initially it was, the attraction was we can make this up. We don't have to learn lines. Um, you know, and it also came with guilt because I was, you know, uh, my father was always, if I was a little bit of a workaholic and he was always willing to raise the proposition that we're all fucking lazy. So anytime you weren't working, then you were lazy. And so improv mm. felt great, but it also like, hmm. I should really learn lines and do theater and be studious about that because I don't want to be lazy. So that mm. was, yeah, that's me and my introduction to it in the seventies. <laughs> Did you uh, fancy yourself a theater kid back then? Yeah, I was a, um, I was a theater and music kid who played basketball. And then I quit the basketball team of my high school uh, senior year. Uh, and that team won the state championship in Indiana. <laughs> wow. I'd like to uh, assume it's because I'm so savvy about chemistry. I knew that I needed to be removed from it. But, uh, <laughs> so you did them a favor. They I owe did you. them a favor. And it was, I mean, at the time I was also like this, you know, like home announcer, like I found ways around it. And I was like, you know, I was in every singing group and in, in uh, high school, I I did all the plays. I was in our sketch and improv group. I was in uh, uh, the uh, the I can't remember if I was the president of Thespians or if I was the president of Mask and Mime or what. Well, I was just super involved. But yeah. like my senior year is when I went all in on like yeah, athlete uh, athletics are just recreational, and I'm going to do this. So, mm -hmm. and so. You mentioned that when you were exposed to improv, you liked it because you didn't have to memorize lines. But was there any point where it started to become a lot more real for you, a lot more special for you? Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, because we were allowed to invent these little improvised mimes, which would turn into, um, you know, like little sketches. Uh, 
we would get laughter and feedback that was positive from an audience about something that we created. Um, you know, and one of the stories that stands out, there was uh, myself and my best friend in high school was like also the all state guard on the football team. So like he was the stocky kid and I was the tall kid and we put two bowler hats <clears throat> on our head and we immediately looked like Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> and so we could just do like Laurel and Hardy bits. And um, once or twice a year, we would perform at the Indiana school for the deaf and we would do like an all silent mime show. And they like, as soon as we put on the Laurel and Hardy hats, you know, the kids went crazy. And so we knew, we learned in our junior year that that was something uh, we did like, we, we did our best, you know, two minute mime, I think it was called weightlifters. Um, and they loved it. And so getting that, seeing that my creation or my co-creation with my partner could get this type of appreciation to me and my brain that started me thinking like, Oh, I'm getting the same reaction a playwright or a studied actor would get. And then the following year when you know, I told the teacher, it's like, look, this is, they really love the Laurel and Hardy bits. We should do three of them, like one in the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. And like, that's, I think when my director brain kind of came out just in terms of like, you know, a running order and like, let's space these out and let's, if they like this bit, let's, you know, let's do, let's save the best one for last, do the worst one in the middle and start with the middle one in the beginning, you know? So I've always had a puzzle working brain. Um, and I think, I think I've always thought of myself as much of, uh, as much as an actor as I have as a director. Cause I also directed some stuff in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and, and in those days there was no such thing as like, y- y- there's no such thing as a professional improviser. It was just something <laughs> we knew about. So true. Yeah. We knew about something wonderful right away. We knew about second city, but it was all improv was just, you know, a tool that actors used. So yeah, I think I considered myself, I think I considered myself a performer because I didn't want to limit myself or some shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's funny. Um, I, I kind of saw improv back then the, the same way you did. I mean, when I was in college uh, studying acting, I just thought of improv as just something you did as a warm up for your acting classes. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until after college that I saw that, Oh wait, you can actually do a whole improvised show. Oh wait, you can actually do a whole show without props and scripts. And I was like, wow, that was like a, a mind blowing moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, I mean, I really should give my high school teacher, I should give Dolly Davis more credit because it, it turned out to be a really good thing that we had to create sketches without speaking first so it made it made us use our physical and it was almost like a primer to like mime and or clowning even though we were in indiana and like nowhere near any artistic excellence of instruction around that but it you know this whole idea of you can use your body for something other than athletics Uh, my body was already used to being engaged in an athletic way and this all of a sudden oh this was a bridge uh the athletic skills that i had developed and sensibilities and and sense of team that i had developed then 
easily lent themselves into me seeing how, oh, this is, there's an application to all of this. I don't have to just dunk on somebody or, you know, put on a football helmet and get hit and cry. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think mimes are really underestimated these days. I think there's so much we can learn as performers from miming because that's an art into itself. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, I don't know if they're underestimated. I don't, I don't see many. I think, um, I mean, I think it's a skill you can learn. I think it's, it's a, it, it seems to me to be a, uh, like a specific slice of just movement in general. Um, and I think, you know, I, I did learn some mime stuff <clears throat> from people, but I think maybe like clowning is, is, was probably more beneficial to me because some of it is miming, you know, doing pieces of business, but clowning is also like a hyper awareness of everything that's right here, right now. Hmm. Um, and so I think clowning lent itself to being more in the instantaneous moment where mime was like you're conceiving or contriving a piece that you will then present to people that's practiced and rehearsed and polished. So, mm-hmm. so what was it that made you move to Chicago specifically? Oh, uh, second city <laughs> to, to study at second city and IO. Uh, I wanted to study with Dell. I wanted to go to second city and then faith Soloway was my girlfriend in our improv group in college. And she was from Chicago and, um, you know, is quite in love with her lover to this day. We're still very good friends. Um, but like, you know, the girl, the career, the, the bigger city than Indianapolis, it was kind of a no brainer. Right. You're one of the few people that I've gotten to meet that actually got to work with Del Close. Mm. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, what was it like working with the Del Close? I mean, it's a big question. Um, you know, I, I think I, I definitely learned from Dell. Um, and there's a couple of things, you know, I thought, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was, I thought he was wonderful and awful. Um, <laughs> and, but I think, you know, it's like, uh, he was so different from my father and so different from like the authority male figures that I had encountered at that point in my life that I'm like, wow. Uh, okay. This guy's taught a lot of famous people. Actually, the first time I, the first time I met him, I think I've told this story before, but the first time I met him, I was with a buddy named, uh, Charlie Hyatt. We went up to Chicago. Uh, he had a joint that was our our passage to get into Dell's apartment, which was right across the street from second city. So we smoked a joint with Dell and um, I had not moved up to Chicago yet, but I was very interested in this whole thing of like improv Olympics and teamwork and improv and like, Oh yeah. my sports background's really good for this. I'll, I'll let Dell, you know, know what my background is. And this is why I'm excited to, to come and, you know, work with him. And so we got super high and we're <laughs> sitting on the, the, we're sitting on his like mattress, which was like on the ground. And, um, 
I, I, you know, a moment came where there was like a pause and I said something stupid, like, you know, I'm really looking forward to working with you. The whole team thing was ingrained in me, like in a sports context as a child, in a sports context as a child, I'm, uh, I really think, you know, there's something, there's something about it that's going to have me, you know, find my place in Chicago and this whole, you know, uh, art by committee before that was coined. Uh, and then I like dropped the fun fact as if I would impress him, you know, my dad played football for Notre Dame and he was holding a joint like about eight inches from his lips, just like kind of listening to me. Hi. And then there was this pregnant pause and I could feel his brain working and he goes, Oh really? And then he takes a hit off the joint and he says, uh, your father played football for Notre Dame, huh? I taught Belushi how to shoot up. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I felt like, I think, I think just because of that moment, uh, that moment is what makes me love South Park because I felt like every South Park, <laughs> Park kid going, wow. <laughs> um, oh my God, that's so awesome. Yeah, but he was, you know, at the end of it, all I wanted to do, I just wanted to gain his respect. And, um, and I did by the end of it. You know, I love the idea where your character like a veil I love the idea that our job is to enchant and horrify. Um, I think play to the top of your intelligence is a horrible over, uh, overvalued note. Um, I think his idea about don't say the obvious thing, say the interesting thing is not useful to the way that I improvise, but he also, you know, rejected, even though there's a book, about him called guru. I think he, he rejected this idea that he really brought anything original to the table. There's a a video on YouTube that Brian stacked in. And he's like, you know, nothing I know or nothing I'm about to talk about is original. It's all gathered from my experiences along the way. And, uh, he did when the annoyance started, he was a big fan and very much in support of us. Um, uh, like immediately it took Sharna a while to come around, but uh, she finally did. Um, yeah. But he was, he was very clear about uh, people who might go on to teach uh, about us making things our own and teaching what we're passionate about and teaching whatever we could take from him that we could, that would help us be a better teacher to, you know, like take that. And so that wasn't his constant message, but I got that from him. And by the last time I worked with him, which was at a festival in Kansas City in uh, 97, maybe. Um, yeah, I had, I, had, I had gained his respect and I knew the parts. I knew the couple of things from Dell that, you know, stay with me. Um, but there's other teachers and there's other influences I had that are even probably, yeah, I mean, there's other, Martin DeMott was more impactful. My cumulative experience with Mick Napier and Mark Sutton and Faye Soloway and the other annoyance people, that was more impactful. Um, you know, there was a couple of teachers at uh, Second City that were 
that I got a couple of nuggets from. Jeff Machalski was one and Michael Gelman was one. But he was, Dell was not, you know, after that moment with the joint, he was no longer sort of mysterious. When I came back to Chicago and started studying with him, I, you know, I was soon exposed to a guy who would, in a three-hour class, he would tell st- old stories for two hours, and then maybe we would get on stage. <laughs> um, but boy, those stories were worth listening to, a lot of them. Um, I bet. And I, and I think he taught me, you know, in the same vein as what, when I grew up, my I think my parents taught me more about how not to parent than how to parent. I thought Dell taught me more about how not to teach than how to teach, even though there's a couple of valuable things I took from him and there's a couple of valuable things I took from my, my parents. So maybe I'm just contrary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you kind of touched upon something that I hear a lot more of these days, how there are a lot of, overvalued things that you hear a lot in various improv schools and from various teachers. And you hear a lot about improv rules all the time. And I know Dave Rosowski talks about this all the time. (laughs) Do you think that improv rules are helpful or do you think we should be a little bit cautious as to not take them too literally? Well, I mean, you know, now this will start the section of the podcast where now we're kind of in the improv weeds. And truly, I believe the answer to most improv questions is it depends. So can the rules be helpful for some people? Sure. Um, Are the rules helpful for everyone? No. Do you have to learn the rules to improvise? No. Um, And, it, you know, and then why is it that you're improvising? So one of the things that I'm going to talk about in my book is I think it's important for people to, in a group, to understand why we're doing this. And a lot of times the dynamics in in groups break down is because there's different ideas about why we're doing or what we want to, you know, why we're doing what we're doing uh, and what we want to do with that. And so I'm breaking down improvisation, the theatrical improvisation into three categories which is um, professional, hobby, and recreational. And then there's a third type of theatrical improvisation, which is therapeutic, which can be personal or socially therapeutic. And that can fall under the realm of professional and or hobby, but I think that requires specialists to facilitate that. And, you know, one aspect of that is we're back to like improv's not therapy, but there's therapists that use, you know, drama therapy or, um, you know, there's different, there's different approaches to therapy, like gestalt or open chair or internal family systems that have improvisational practices built into the therapy. And I think it's important for some improvisers to have a not, you know, to grasp a knowledge of that. That's one thing that makes me, me. Um, but it doesn't, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the times the dynamics in a group break down because, you know, some people just want to have fun and, you know, they don't care and it's just recreational. And then some people it's a hobby and they'd really like to get better and they'd really like to do just musical or they'd really like to do just genre or they'd really like to do narrative or whatever it is. 
you know, and so then I try to tackle the question of like, what does it mean to be professional? It's not just getting paid, but like what inside of us, um, what, what is it that we care about that goes into being professionally minded in improvisation? Um, and so, you know, I think it's fair to ask, would there, are there rules that would apply to each category that I'm putting forward? And, you know, now we're just back to, it depends. So like, if we all agree, if we can all agree, yeah, we're just doing this recreationally. Okay, cool. So now we can invent our own rules and really they're not rules. They're just guidelines about like, what do we hold dear? What are we after? Why do we want to improvise together? What, what does success look like? Um, and that group is allowed to decide that for themselves. But I think it's, you know, I think it's egos and improvisation that want to codify formats and codify rules and, you know, uh, make it important to do it right. And I just take the point of view that like nothing's original, everything's been done before. We can come up with a way to do, you know, we can string a couple of devices or things together and, you know, call it a format. But even if a format is quote unquote, quote, unique and never been done before, it doesn't mean that it's original. It's still just making shit up. And there's, uh, there's no, I don't think there's any value in like grasping tightly to a rigid idea about what improv has to be. Um, if you want to be happy in life. <laughs> <laughs> How have you seen improv change throughout the years? I mean, I love Mick Napier's answer to this question, which is improv hasn't changed. People take a suggestion and then they make shit up. <laughs> so I think that's true. I, I think there's, you know, one of the things to remember, I think that's helpful is that there's at any time, there's always more than one thing that's true. Many things can be true at the same time. So I think, you know, improvs become more widespread. Um, improvisation is global now. And I think there's influence in improvisation. I feel like I've, I feel like I've encountered most flavors of what improv can be in the world, but I'm also sure that there's, there's some type of improvisation out there that I haven't encountered or haven't even conceived uh, or imagined that I would encounter yet. Um, it's still spontaneous creation. Um, and I think there's more, there's more being said about it and written about it. I think maybe one of the best authorities or books on improvisation is uh, uh, Stephen Nachmanovich, who, who is a classical musician. He has, he writes a book called free play and he has another one. That's uh, maybe it's called what if or something, but when you just talk about it's uh, I'm currently interested in classical musicians that hit the wall. They've got all the classical aptitude in the world. They know their scales. They know their drills. They know how to, you know, finger the instruments. They know how to do anything that need to technically be as, as sound as the most technical other person that might be with them. And then they say, now what? 
And now it's like somebody grabs their cello and somebody grabs their tuba and they just look at each other and they just start fucking around and they express themselves to each other, then with each other and then together into the world. And so uh, I think, I think I got this quote, 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 right. The, where he says, improvisation is what we started doing five seconds ago. Mm. And even, you know, even what we're doing right now is improvising. Um, of course. And I think that uh, I also like to think of improvisation as an art medium, not an art form, but it's an art medium like paint. So we can use the process of improvisation uh painting is a process like improvising is a process but not all painting yields art nor does all improvisation um and so i think there's maybe one thing that's changed is these people desperately wanting to call it their art form and to you know this is my art form that improvisation is my art and i wonder if that's helpful hmm. interesting very interesting you've had the opportunity to do improv not just all over the country but also in different countries all over the world mm -hmm. do you see differences in how people perform improv in different countries yes i mean i uh, i think there's just different stylistic things and there's different tastes it's, you know, the metaphor would be like, you know, how many cable channels do you have on your TV? <laughs> and then how many different <laughs> categories could you divide your cable channels into? You know, is it 20? Is it 50? Is it 100? Um, they're all still cable TV, but there's all these different channels. Um, and some of them, well, you know, I don't have to list the categories. But so I think that there's, there are certain... Um, I think at this point in time, the interesting thing is I think American style improv, whatever that is, is, has been invading, you know, Europe and Australia and Asia and Africa. And I think European and Asian and even African improvisation is, uh, and South American improvisation is like invading America. And so yeah. where I think, where American improv tended to be talky and comedy focused. Uh, I think it seems like there's a little bit more of a movement to explore uh, different theatrical expressions of it. And I also don't mind going to other places and they say, teach me how to do Chicago style improv. And, you know, what the hell Chicago style improv? Like we're here. Why would we do Chicago style improv? <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm not even sure what it is anymore. Um, but I also know that even in, I feel like in the United States, I, I feel like old, like I'm older now I'm 61, like I said before. And I feel like I'm a little bit more accepted in places where like narrative improv or like, creating an improvisation, a play improvisationally um, is more accepted and expected and appreciated by audiences than it is here in the United States. There's places in the United States where that, where it can be appreciated, but I think 
you know, still hear people want, they want comedy. And so how I describe myself is, you know, comedy is a consequence of what I do, but it's not my goal. Mm-hmm. And even if I'm, even if I'm, you know, if I find myself in a comedy show and it's billed as comedy, I'm still going to play my base of how I play will be the same, but just my, my instincts, I might grab different tools off my tool belt as the show unfolds. Um, so, you know, there's, that doesn't give you a lot of specificity about, about what you're asking. <laughs> like, I think in, I think in South America, there's, you know, you can find more physical stuff. Um, uh, match improv, which started in Quebec is like all over South America and all over a lot of Europe. And it's like, literally, you know, it's like comedy sports on steroids and it literally takes place in rings and it's huge but it's it's almost like clowning meets professional wrestling. I mean, it's big, expressive, <laughs> performative, and it's huge, and people love it. Um, you know, and then there's places that are more places that are more dark and experimental, and you know, they do a type of dramatic improvisation that they just call it theatrical improvisation, like in Eastern Europe, um, in Slovenia, and Bulgaria. Uh, even in Romania, people, you know, they, they've got different acting chops because just a generation ago, people's uncles were disappearing for no reason. And so, you know, that's interesting to me. And then there's dance, you know, and then there's, um, you know, stuff like playback, like playback theater or like um, theater of the oppressed or forum theater, the Augusto Boal stuff. That's, that's technically Im- improvisation, but it's also therapeutic, social justice, social order, um, you know, but not that prevalent in the United States, even though playback was, you know, theoretically invented, I, I guess, I guess I can say definitively it was invented in upper state New York, but I just don't, uh, I have friends that do playback. I've seen playback, you know, it's not really my thing, but, uh, yeah, I think all improvisation, I think 10 years from now, like all improvisation will be everywhere. And I and I wonder if there'll be anything new, quote unquote, new, given that nothing's new to discover. <laughs> gotcha. You know, every time I see you perform, what is so clear in your performance is that everything you say and do comes from a place of truth. And it certainly comes from a place of honesty. How crucial is is it to have that honesty when you're performing? I mean, for me, it's everything. It's um, you know, I think there's there's a chunk of us who our preference is to perform that way, and um, you know, it's it's one way to improvise. It's a way to improvise. It's not the way to improvise. Um, but there's you know, there's, we're definitely a smaller chunk of people. And maybe that chunk of people that value that is growing. Uh, my guess is there's more people today that value that and that are pursuing that than there were even 10 years ago. But I think, um, you know, uh, I mean, Mark Sutton and I were the first ones to say, we're just going to sit in a chair and pretend like we're fishing for an hour and just keep it honest. And, um, 
I think at the time when we did that, we didn't realize how foundational that was to, you know, a branch of improvisation that, uh, you know, that is more theatrical. I think TJ and Dave try to keep it honest. I think um, Weird Ass, I think they they try to keep it honest. Um you know, and all you guys that do your, that do solo improv, I don't know how the hell you can do anything, but, you know, like keep it honest. And I, I don't know how you keep anything straight. I mean, someday you'll be old young man and it'll just, you'll see. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> um, uh, is that literally how Basprov started? Just you and Mark saying, let's just sit in chairs and pretend to Well, finish? it started in, um, it started in our late night show, the screw puppies. And I think the screw puppies had been down to the Miami improv fest before. Um, but it was our late night improv show in the nineties. And I guess it started like 93, 94, something like that. And it was a midnight show. And we all, you know, the basic format is we take a suggestion at the beginning of the show that we say we're going to ignore. There's two cases of beer backstage. Uh, and by the third scene, somebody will be fucking a pig. <laughs> and, and then we all take turns on lights and everybody has seven minutes on lights. And so part of the fun of it is if you're on lights, you can just leave the lights up for your whole seven minutes or you can fuck with people on the lights. And so there was always a little bit of an edge of us fucking with each other, you know, on stage, backstage, off stage, from the lights, whatever. And so one time Mark and I went out and just pretend like we're fishing and somebody, whoever was on lights, they just left the lights on. And then we just found these guys and it, and it was slow and screw puppies was fairly fast and quick and, you know, vulgar and dirty and, you know, midnight Saturday, right? And somebody, they just left the lights on and we did like 10 freaking minutes of just two guys sitting in a chairs with, you know, mime fishing rods. And, uh, and then everybody was not, but I mean, a lot of people were in back and just like, oh, great. That, you know, way to, way to bring the show to a halt, but the audience dug it. They loved it. But, you know, it became this thing that whenever in an annoyance scene in an, in any annoyance show, a lot of times there's little pockets of improvisation built into the, into the, the show itself. And anytime anybody was too indulgent or they milked the scene longer than was, you know, advised, they called it a fishing scene. And so um, whenever we would bring these guys back, sometimes we bring these guys back and whoever was on lights would like take us right out. Like in 30 seconds, you know, it'd be like, boo, (laughs) we want to see them. And so, you know, we kind of held on to that. And when the, when the big theater closed or we knew the big theater was closing, we decided that we would try to workshop it. Uh, this would have been like 99 or 2000 at IO. There was a thing called slug fest where you could just like workshop stuff like a 20 minute show. And so we, we workshopped a thing called boat prov, I think three or four times and kind of locked into these characters. Uh, and then we, yeah, then we got invited to do it first at like improv all night at Chicago improv festival, like at three in the morning or something, packed a house, turned people away. And, in getting ready for that, we 
the, or I guess as we were going through Slugfest, it's like, should we just like do a fishing scene and then jump out of the boat and play scenes based on that? And it's like, nah, fuck it. Let's just sit there. Let's just sit there and keep it honest and be fishing and just make people watch us for an hour. <laughs> That's what I love so much about it. You know, you don't go into what a lot of other shows do where it's like, here's our gimmick. And now we're going to break away and do these scenes. I love that the entire show you never get out of the chairs Mm-mm. unless you've caught a really big fish and you have to really reel it mm-hmm. in. And it's just the two of you sitting there the entire time. Nothing feels more honest than watching that. I always get such a kick out of that. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, it's, um, you know, shit, we've been doing it for 23 years now. And it's, um, I think, you know, Mark and I are both from Indiana and he's from a small town where ironically my dad would go to work every day. Like my dad was a a sales executive at a company that made clutch plates. So there was a factory and they press clutch plates and then he would drive up to Detroit and sell them to Ford. Uh, And I think you know, the one thing about Indiana was like honest days work for an honest days pay. So there's little mm-hmm. Indiana ish things of, you know, of the time that we grew up that are sort of rooted in these characters. So the idea, like keep it honest, honest days work for an honest days pay was sort of foundational in the, you know, ethic of the, of the piece, I guess. And I think we decided that, uh, you know, without saying it, I thought, uh, it would be, we knew it would be funny because we've been playing together since college and all through our annoyance years. We knew we were funny together on stage, but we also wanted the acting challenge of being able to hold an audience's attention and, and, and delivering a compelling one act play with two guys fishing. Um, and after all the success we had at the annoyance doing all the crazy potty mouth shit that we did, it just seemed like the next thing to do as we were ending our thirties and moving into our forties, you know, and look, uh, luckily or skillfully or whatever it worked. And, um, yeah, I think, um, that's somewhere along the line, the, the decision or organic discovery, keeping it honest, became apparent to us because there was also times where we would, you know, we would try to, we would do a jokey show or we'd try to do bits and it just, you know, we, we could tell the, you know, we could tell the difference. It's like, Nope, not the same show. That was, you know, it's a couple of times we'd be a little bit drunk and we'd get a little loose and just try to cut up and (laughs) shit and people weren't buying it. They just, they literally want to see, you know, in most of the con- in most of our country, people have driven along a country road and seen a boat with two guys fishing and thought to themselves, "I wonder what they're talking about." And so <laughs> it just it just simply has to be that. When you're doing Bass Prov, what's your beer of choice? Well, the official beer of Bass Prov used to be Bush, <laughs> um, and so now. I don't think it matters so much. It just, it needs to be cans, not bottles. Cause you don't put bottles in a boat. Right. Um, and there's even, and neither one of us, you know, drinks as much as we used to. And so sometimes it's just like, we'll each just grab a tall boy or whatever. There's a tall boy of, and we'll just drink that. Um, 
So yeah, the beer of choice thing has gone out the window, eh, probably somewhere between five and 10 years ago. Okay. Um, I know the answer to this next question will start again with the words, it depends, but I'll ask it anyway. Okay. All right. When you're teaching improv, whether it's in class or in workshops here and all over the world, what are some of the things that you want to try to get across to your students? It depends. Okay. Um, basically, foundationally, I believe you really can't teach somebody to improvise. I believe most teachers are just in service to the students by helping them get out of their own way. Um, and so whatever it is that you're teaching, you're essentially teaching them to be present and responsive. And because, I mean, part of the reason I'm writing the book is because, you know, there's a chunk, there's a chunk of like neuroscience that people are interested in that seems to be, a consistent thing that helps me travel all over the world. I want to write the book to get all that stuff out so they can read it and I can arrive in a room so that they know what I mean when I say in each of our heads, there's an engineer and a jazz musician. And I want them to know the behavioral neuroscience behind that. And then what that means in terms of them being present. And some of it is based in is understanding, not just, you know, that you're in your head, but why you're in your head, but really how you're in your head <laughs> and that, and to equip yourself as an actor to receive what's around you through what I'll just shorthand call um, the specificity of the jazz that you choose or find in the moment. And so that's a real shorthand version of like 30 minutes of shit. I can say at the beginning of a class and I'm just, uh, I don't mind saying it, but I don't want to front every class up that way. So I think that, you know, I, I stand on the shoulders or with the shoulders of the people that I've learned from Wear your character, like a veil, you are enough, take care of yourself in order to take care of your scene partner. Um, we have to play the scene that's here, not the scene that we want to be here. And it's just like, be present and be be aware of the context of what you're doing and be in service to the context of what you're do doing, starting with yourself, your partner, the show, the audience, the night. Do you find that most students come in with that engineer brain? Yes. <laughs> I mean, everybody has both. Um, but yeah, and I mean, it's also because I've gotten some renown about, you know, this is part of my thumbprint as an improv teacher. This is also something I take into the corporate world. And, um, uh, especially corporate brains, you know, you're essentially trying to help engine, you know, companies require people to have engineering brains, which is like, here's the parameters. Here's what's allowable. Here's, you know, essentially the, the engineer brain is the HR department and then the jazz, whatever jazz is allowed to, to be, um, 
has to be as a consequence of the HR department relaxing because it knows that we are safe, we are connected, and we understand the context in which we can proceed. Um, so for sure, everybody has both, but most people lead with their engineering brain. Do you find that your methods of teaching improv change when you're teaching people in the corporate world, or does it stay exactly the same? Well, sometimes I have, when I teach in the corporate world, then I have, an, you know, oftentimes a second agenda. And it's, you know, the one company that I contract to the most, it's really presence. So it just dovetails perfectly with what I teach. And whether it's executive presence or personal presence or storytelling for leaders or selling with presence, um, you know, I know, I know sales tactics. I know the Socratic technique. Uh, I also know a whole bunch of like personality assessment tools and I can like dovetail improvisation into that. Um, but with a corporate client, you know, you have to start with why are we here? What's the objective and why are we here? And in improvisation, that's why, again, I'm back to recreational, hobby, professional. Why are we here? What, why are we doing this and how do we want to do it? What, what's our expectations? And if, you know, if, it, if a group is mixed, which it often is, of people who would, you know, just as soon take a professional approach and people who want to be like serious hobbyist nerds about like, this is the way we should always do it. Or the people who are just recreational, like, fuck it, let's just do a bar prop show, have fun, have some drinks, whatever. There's, you know, it would be, it's interesting to me what could happen if there was a conversation about, you know, maybe we play in different ways on different nights. Um, or maybe we align ourselves with people who want to play in the same way. And part of what I'm interested in is uh, facilitating a wider array of professionally minded improvisers. And, um, you know, that's going to take, you know, me plus a hundred other, you know, teachers or improvisers who are who are like of this mind, but I'm going to present this stuff, not as a, this is what we have to do. This is what we need to do. Just like I'm going to present it as here's what my thinking is. Who's with me? What are other thoughts? Um, and I, you know, and going back to your, your question about how has improv changed? I mean, I think there's far more improvise. There's, there's, there's a far greater number of improvisers in the world than improv teachers uh, in the world. And I think per capita, there's a far, far greater number of, of great improvisers than there are great teachers. Um, and, you know, some of that is rooted in, I try to always at least a couple times a year, take another improv class from somebody else, young, old, different, other country, whatever, I try to take other improv classes to see what other people are up to or to see if, you know, if I can help with whatever they're trying to teach by being a productive, you know, present member of that class that day. Um, but I think it's, you know, I would like to see, I would like to see 
more evidence of professionally minded people without it being precious, without it being our art, without it being um, anal retentive or OCD about rules. Um, it would be great if professionalism were second nature in more people. Uh, and if that conversation was as, you know, prevalent as, you know, sweet or salty. <laughs> How do you think, what do you think is the best way to get more improvisers into, as you described, more of that professional mindset? I'm, you know, time. I think like, um, I wonder, I mean, uh, A, I don't know the answer to that. B, I wonder if the answer is, why did I quit smoking? I quit smoking because I was tired of it at the end of the day. So maybe collectively the world gets tired of there not being that. And so the first question is, well, what is that? Well, one of the reasons I'm writing the book is to, to take a shot at, is this what professional means? You know, discuss. <laughs> I want the discussion. I want the discussion out there. Uh, but for sure, it has to be something that evolves organically. And I'm only, you know, I'm one tiny, tiny goldfish in a giant ocean. So, so in other words, it depends. It depends, LD. It depends, LD. <laughs> so, you know, you've obviously experienced a lot, you've seen a lot, and you've gone through so much. As you look back now at all of the years where you've developed yourself and all the struggles that you've gone through and seeing where you're at now, what reflections come to you as you think about your journey? I mean, I suppose I was just reinforced on this last tour with an idea that I've always had, which is treat every show like your last, treat every process like your last, treat every class like your last. And that can mean something different each time. But, you know, since I, since I, I went through chemo and we, you know, we, we squelched two cancers. One of them was stage three. It just, it made me aware of like, oh, uh, people go through cancer and then their perspective changes. And for me, it's not like my perspective really didn't change that much. It's just like, oh yeah, that has been something that I've always carried with me. I'm just less satisfied when I'm not mindful about that in some way. If I, if I, I aspire every time I step on a stage, even at a jam or whatever, to just remember that it's a privilege to be on a raised or not raised platform with people watching us make stuff up and to never take it for granted. Um, and so I think that's the answer to your question. I think it's, uh, yeah, this could, this could be our last conversation and it, and it doesn't cause me sadness. It makes me joyful. And I think that's, um, I think that makes me different from a lot of people. Uh, the idea of this is the last time, uh, I don't feel sadness around that. The idea that 
uh, I think one of my, I don't know where this quote came from, but I, you know, probably some Buddhist monk somewhere wrote this on a bumper sticker. Uh, but I love the idea that to know how to die is to know how to live. And so for me, that's, uh, yeah, I know how to die. And it's, uh, like I told my doctors, it's like, you know, they're like, you know, you have to take care and rest and remember you're fighting cancer. I'm like, I'm not fighting cancer. You're fighting cancer. I'm dancing with cancer. (laughs) It's like, I'll dance my ass. I'll dance my ass till it fucking chokes me out and sends me on my way. But that's truly how I feel. And so in a way that speaks to, um, you know, experience and improv that, you know, the, the thousand or more shows that you do where you suck and you die on stage. Those are better teachers than anybody standing in front of a room saying two on stage. I did know about your fight with cancer. And the way I found out about it was when you posted yourself banging the gong and where you were finally cancer free, was it something Mm -hmm. that you were very open about or was that something you kind of kept to yourself for a while? I mean, I kept it to a small amount of people because I cope in a different way than a lot of people. Um, And so I cope with humor and stoicism typically. So what I didn't like, I had to ask myself, like, what do I need for me as I'm going through chemo? And what I don't need is sadness. I still don't know how, like we're all, you know, society conditions us to say, oh, I'm sorry you're going through that. And I don't see why that helps. Like, oh, you mean my cancer made you sorrowful? Oh, fuck. Now my cancer just got worse (laughs) because you have sorrow because of my cancer. Like it's better. It's like, ah, fuck, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. But it's good to see you. Let's go get a steak, you know? (laughs) Like, I don't need sorrow last. Like the words that sucks, just those like, yeah, it sucks. And many things are true at the same time. And it doesn't suck because I'm still fucking here now. Um, so I didn't want, you know, and only a couple people in my family knew I did not want to invoke any type of prayer circle around me because I'm, you know, I, I'm a self-described, I'm an atheist with Buddhist post-it notes on me (laughs) and it's like i'm you know people want to pray and then that's their way of connecting to whatever their purpose is totally cool like i don't you know there's there's some in my family and some around me where i just at least this trip through i i wanted to go through this on my own terms so nobody could blame their prayers on my surviving cancer (laughs) And so again, that's me being fucking difficult and contrary Uh, and no slam on anybody who wants to pray. It's just like, that's not what I need. So there was a small handful of people that knew when I went through it, Um, my daughter, her mom, both my daughters and both their moms uh, knew my sister knew. And then a couple of other people who had been through it before who, you know, could uh, engage in sort of trench humor Um, but I, yeah, I mean, going through it and, you know, being in a hospital, that's a little Catholic flavored. I discovered all the shit. I mean, I had three cancers and I still have like, like a little prostate cancer, like old men have that's, you know, that's nagging me. So as soon as I found out I had three cancers, it's like, oh, fuck. I'm in comedy and I have three of something. Well, now I got to do a show. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because comedies in threes, as we all know. Comedies in threes. <laughs> so, yeah, I want it to be... Um, I'm fine with death, and when I die, I die. And I, you know, part of me believes that the person, the people dying have it easy. You know, those of us that have to stay here, we have the rough job. So I can, uh, you know, I can miss people, and I have friends that are sick and battling cancer right now. I got a buddy in the hospital who just got a new liver a week ago. And, you know, it's like, uh, I, I don't. I've seen people die. I've been around a lot of, you know, death and, and shit in my life. But I think it's, um, I mean, Studs Terkel, the Chicago writer, said this, like, death is the new pornography. Nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and I've done a couple of storytelling shows when it's, when I'm, you know, I like talked about cancer. And, um, you know, I referenced Tignataro. When Tignataro uh, found out she had cancer, she went on stage that night and did like, you know, you're not going to do a better, whatever it is, seven or eight minutes that you can find on YouTube of her just like, yeah, I got cancer. It's okay. It's okay. No, it's okay. Really? It's okay. Uh, but you say, you know, you say that. And uh, if you want to feel, if you want to feel collective breath, leaving a room, stand on stage and open with. Uh, so uh, I just got done with chemo. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. You know, this round goes to me. <laughs> That's always a reaction when, when you bring that up in front of an audience. Yeah. I'm, and I think largely, you know, humanity doesn't want to deal with their own mortality and, you know, in a way that could be the root of all of our problems. You know, I don't think humanity wants to deal in an honest way with our own mortality. And so we're taught to resist it and we're taught to fight it. And I think the reason we're taught to resist it and fight it is because there's big money in resistance and fighting. <laughs> that, maybe that's a cynical view, but, uh, but yeah, once I knew I did that first, they thought they got it, but then they, they, the colon cancer went stage three and it had started to spread. So that's why I had to do chemo. And then once I had to do chemo, it was like, well, shit, now I'm going to be, I'm going to be offline for a few months. So at least I can start, you know, letting my improv family know and like the, the family I choose. And um, yeah, I'm just a person that I'm like, okay, if I post something on Facebook, I want to just post ringing the bell. And if everybody's like, hold on, wait a minute. Is Joe just ringing a random bell for a bit or. <laughs> well, Joe, we've come to the final question of the night question. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Hmm. 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 Maybe it's uh, maybe it's like own your shit. Maybe it's own your shit. Um, you know, nobody's perfect and everybody's truly everybody's number one topic of interest is themselves. So especially in this world, where, you know, we're in the arts and there's egos and there's damaged people and there's, you know, fucking just like any other 
I guess just like any other walk of life, there's, there's people, you know, there's on your way up, people will try to knock you down once you're like up and doing what you want to do and doing what, you know, I've been successful since my forties in that every penny I make, I make doing something I love. And I'm also kind of ruthlessly attached to the idea of just remaining middle class. Cause we, we ever talked about like the shrinking middle class. Um, but I think owning your shit just means don't play the, you know, don't bullshit yourself to get rich. Don't bullshit yourself to get famous. Don't bullshit your, you know, I don't want to fucking move to LA. I don't want to fucking move to New York. I like visiting New York. I don't like LA. Um, and what my shit is, I love live theater. I love live improvisational theater. I like, I like creating something on stage with others for a night and then it's gone. Uh, I like that. And in doing that, uh, you know, and Mark Sutton doesn't get enough credit. I mean, Mark Sutton's the one that said, we have to play the scene that's here, not the, not the scene that's we want to be here. To me, that's owning your shit. Um, and so you're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to fuck up along the way. You're going to do shitty shows along the way. You're going to do good stuff along the way. You're going to fucking grow along the way. You're going to slip and fall. You're going to hurt people. You're going to make people cry. You're going to make people joyful. You're going to make people grateful. And all of that is your shit. And so if you can just accept yourself like as you are and accept people as they are, um, in the moment right now and try to minimize hope and expectation and just be true to you and what you got going on. Uh, Inside, inside your own head, you're probably going to be okay. Even if you have to take a, you know, you have to work a shit job or you got to spend 10 years of some shit fucking existence just to fucking, you know, whatever, like own your fucking shit and just, uh, do what you need to do, man. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) Joe, this was a blast, my friend. Thank you so so much. This is very generous of you. I love you so much, man. And I wish you, you, brother. And I wish you so much more success, my friend. Thanks, man. Not done yet. And uh, look forward to, to uh, seeing you down in Tampa next uh, next month. Just a couple of weeks. Yeah. Four weeks. I will see you there. Take care, awesome. my friend. Th- thanks, buddy. Accept yourself as you are. Isn't it interesting how we constantly need to be reminded of that? I know it's something I need to remind myself all the time. Anyway, thank you a thousand times to Joe Bill for chatting and sharing with me today. Please be sure to get to know more about this man. Visit his website, integratedimprovisation.com, to learn more about Joe and how you can contact him for improv workshops for actors and business in person or virtually. You can also learn more about me and my solo show, Together by Myself, at togetherbymyself.com, 
Contact me anytime to have me perform the show at your venue, teach improv workshops, and for magic shows as well. I hope you all had a great time, and I can't wait to share more great times with you, my friends. See you next time on Improv and Magic.